Join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to pick up where we've left off. This will be the last, the third installment of, of what we've tried to do as what I believe will be a case for biblical church membership. I want to make, make a case to you that the Bible does not give us a picture of following Jesus outside of a connected, deep, and covenanted relationship with other believers, both universally and locally. I want to make a case to you that there's, n- there's no other example of following Jesus, of being a Christian, apart from being a Christian in the context of a church. And so I want to cast for you a vision to wrap it up and, and compel you to two things. I want you to be compelled this morning for two things. The first is I want you to submit your life to Jesus. Now, I, I want you to, if you, maybe if you're not a Christian, maybe in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. I'm really encouraged that you're here. And I, I don't want to soft sell anything to you. I don't want to, to kind of bait and switch. I want to be very upfront. I want to tell you who Jesus is, what he has done, and I want to compel you to trust that what he has accomplished for us changes everything. And for you to begin to open your imagination to the possibility that what he says is true and what he has done is real is the chance to have a new life. And I want to compel you to trust him, submit to him as Lord. But the second thing I want to compel you to do is to submit to his people, that is his church. Whether it's this church, I'm biased. I see what God is doing in the life of our church. I'm, bi- I'm biased. Come jump into this. I could, I could look around this room and see evidence of God's grace in it. But, but if not, here's where you don't get off the hook. If it's not submitting to this church, that's, that's okay. But you can't not to su- submit to a church. And I want to k- grant for you, I think, maybe a, a picture that Peter speaks to Christians like you and me. I want to begin in verse 1. We're going to spend the majority of our time from verse 9 and after, but I want to set the stage beginning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the lord is good as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of god chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ for it stands in scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to encourage you with the truth in these words that gives us a new identity secure in Christ, but I also want to compel you to trust them in such a way that will change how you interact, not only with the people in this room, but with what I think will compel you to interact differently with the entire world. This is what I want to compel you to see. I want you to, to see the picture of the local church here as a conglomeration, a collection for God's good purpose like this, that the task of the church in being God's temple, so filled with his presence, is to expand the temple until God finally accomplishes his goal and fills the earth with that glorious presence. The task of the church, the temple of the Lord, is to expand the temple. So for the last few weeks, I, I've tried to make a case to you that if you're going to be a biblical Christian, if you're going to be a biblical follower of Jesus, you're left with, with a few options here. So if you're going to call yourself a biblical Christian, you're going to relate to God by means of the gospel and relate to others in a specific way. You're going to relate to the people in this room and relate to Christians everywhere, universally and locally, as a body that is a, a, a kind of a well-oiled machine that works with parts that are necessary for each one to function respectively. We're a body because of Christ. A biblical Christianity calls us also to relate to one another as a bride of Christ. That is, the bride that God has laid down His Son Jesus' life to redeem and save. She, she, she's not perfect. She's, she's certainly not without blemish. Hosea taught us this, right? That, that God's faithfulness supersedes and, and always trumps people's specifically God's people's unfaithfulness. But we relate to one another as a, a, a bride cost something. It, it, was, it was paid for by Jesus Christ. It's valuable. It's not something you can dismiss. But, but also, the biblical Christianity calls us to relate to one another like a family, like maybe, maybe sometimes dysfunctional, but ultimately a, a sense of belonging, a sense of, uh, a sense of connection that supersedes what you would just simply choose to join or to leave. There's a, there's a sense in which the family you belong to is outside of your control. But also, we are a household, a structure. You'll see the language here in First Peter, also in the book of Ephesians, that God is building. And then you'll see the language of a temple. We're a temple. Biblical Christianity requires you and I to speak of one another, to one another, act in a certain way, that we are a temple such that now the presence of God is not in a place, but it is in a people. And the building up of, the sanctification of, we'll say, the growing in holiness of this people is not because of a, a, a time or location. It's not because of an event that we can somehow host or, or exercise on a regular basis. It's the people of God called aside for the purpose of God. The occasion that we celebrate isn't once a Sunday. The occasion we celebrate is one Sunday 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked out victorious for your sake and mine. The church then is a people, not a place. 
But also, if you're going to live a biblical Christianity, you're going to have to see that there is an inside and an outside. There is a structure by which God has called me as a pastor, elder, bishop to love and care for you, not just for our our friendship, but for the sake of your soul. And for you to be under the care of people that love you enough to hurt your feelings in order to give you truth that will save your soul. There's structures that biblical Christianity demands that we begin to build and create and hold and honor in place. Such that now we don't join the local church, Christians actually submit to the local church. We actually trust that God has redeemed a people for himself such that now we trust them as they lead and guide us. So here we go. I want to compel you then to this. So here's what this is going to practically look like before we start digging into the language of 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what it's going to look like, okay? In the life of our church, we want to regularly compel people into what we would call a covenant membership, a, a covenant with one another, an agreement. Now, now, this isn't to make you to jump through hoops that, that, that we've imagined for ourselves, but, but instead, this agreement, what we would say is, is, is an agreement between you and I to be all that God has called us to be in the Scripture, to expect nothing less of one another than what the Bible tells us we are and who we ought to be, but also to expect nothing more of one another but that what the Bible calls you and I to be, that our identity is so fixed in Christ that now we compel one another to trust in his word for us. This is a big deal for us. This means that this next week, the first one, we're gonna, again, we're a toddler church plant, but this next week we want to have a membership meeting. So immediately following set up and tear down here, we're going to meet at First Christian Church, again, a church that has loved us and cared for us and allowed us to use their building. Uh, immediately after this, we're going to have like a brown bag lunch, grab some, your, your favorite fast food or pack a lunch, um, and head to First Christian Church, and we're going to have a membership meeting. Well, in that meeting, what I want to do is to present to you a covenant, a simple summary of what the Bible expects of me and the Bible expects of you, and the Bible expects of us. Now that we are oriented rightly upwardly, and we are oriented rightly inwardly together, we want to be also today, I think, oriented rightly outwardly. And we want to make a commitment to be biblical in this, to trust not in our own understanding, but to trust that God is actually indwelling us today through the declaration of his word and through the presence of his spirit. So that's what's coming up. And if you'll say, well, I've got something coming up this Sunday, that's okay. This is actually going to be a part of our life till we stop existing. So we're going to do this again in a month. We'll see maybe every other month. And as many people as we can compel to live this biblical Christianity, we will do this. So if you're sitting outside of this looking like this is crazy, it sounds like a cult to me, okay, what I think I can show you for the last couple of weeks, we've tried to film it um, so, that, so that this will be a resource that we can come back to going forward of what biblical membership looks like and what we ought to expect as the Bible tells us what to expect. Uh, as we work our way through this, I think I can compel you. This is not a cult. In fact, this is what biblical Christianity looks like. And outside of a, a real and visible and tangible commitment between you and me, then we won't find obedience. So here's the picture. We talked the first week about how the gospel orients us rightly upwardly. That is, it gives us a new identity, and that identity is a disciple. Now that Christ has redeemed us and changed us, we're, we're not just a, a regular person anymore, we're a disciple of Jesus. 
But we saw last week that now that we've oriented ourselves in Christ toward one another, that also changes our identity to where now we're not just a disciple, but we're a family. Right? We're a family. I know, it, I know as you're looking up at me and I'm looking back at you, you don't get to pick your family, right? And, and, I'm, and I'm sorry for that. But, but thanks be to God for his mercy in giving us people around us to love us, care for us. Ecclesiastes will use the language of picking one another up when we fall down. That re- reorients us together inwardly. The one another's of the scripture are, are now our burden, are now, are now our expectation. But then today I want to show you how biblical Christianity orients us outwardly. So that if we know we are in Christ, and that we know that we are now in Christ, in one another, linked to one another, then now this sets the stage for how we exist in the world. And if our identity in Christ is a disciple, and if our identity in the community of the church is family, then our identity now to the world is missionary. So he gives us an outline here. This is the first thing I want you to look, who is this to? If we're reading someone else's mail, if Peter's writing a letter to some people, we want to see how does this apply to us. So if you can look at the very first verse, Peter, an apostle in chapter 1 of Jesus Christ, who is this? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to a group of people who existed probably straight, um, kind, of, kind of northwest of Palestine, Jerusalem, Judea, all the way to what we would call modern-day Turkey, and to the east of probably the, the eastern, northeastern, furthest reaches of what at that po- point was the Roman Empire. So we're in between kind of the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. And evidently, at this point, there's a as we saw in the book of Acts, uh, some sort of a persecution that's broken out, and it's scattered Christians. Now, at first, we, we would think that's a bad thing, right? Scattering of Christians is a bad thing, but we actually come to find out that it's a good thing, that God actually is sovereign over it. God, God means for the scattering of Christians to happen, even, as we saw in Acts chapter 6, if it means enduring persecution. So Peter is writing to these people scattered by persecution, people that may be risking their lives to follow Jesus. What they profess to be true about Jesus is not something that's culturally acceptable. It's not a cultural Christianity or some sort of a, 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 a hip and advantageous trend to jump on board with. They're dispersed. They're cast out. So he's talking to Christians who are scattered out. Scattered out, mind you, in local church, local churches that exist all around. If you want to know what is happening in Galatia, for example, you can flip over, find in your table of contents a book in the New Testament called Galatians, where the Apostle Paul speaks a word to that local church. So he begins in verse 1, speaking to these people, dispersed possibly by persecution. He says, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Are you listening, listening politicians, right? This, is, this hits home for us. He already kind of sets a stage for what Christ-likeness ought to be. And then he gives us kind of this picture of, he's, it's really strange, he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's important. He, he says that there's something you're, you're, you're yearning for in your youth, something you're yearning for like a newborn baby, And that pure spiritual milk is what sustains you and allows you to live when you're not able to sustain yourself. 
He says, then you may grow up into salvation. Side note here, this is for us an important moment where we, we as Protestants would say that we don't necessarily believe in what's called sacramental pedo-baptism, the belief that you can baptize a child and that baptism is salvific and grants salvation. We believe that we're under a new covenant by faith. You see here, that's why we grow up into salvation. It's something that we, 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 we are granted by faith. But if you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord's good, you won't understand any of this. If you haven't seen that God's merciful despite your sinfulness, none of this will make sense. It says, as you come to him, now a living stone rejected by men. Now he's talking about Jesus. But in the sight of God, even though rejected by men, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Did you get that language that we saw two weeks ago? The church of God is like a structure being built up. It's growing such that then we're referred to as the church as a holy priesthood. This is important. We'll, we'll dig into this even more so. And then we get down to this kind of picture of the gospel that God is doing something in Jesus. He's, a, he's making a callback, a reference to Old Testament prophecy about what God would do to redeem his people. He was going to lay a stone in Zion. It's going to be a cornerstone. That, that's the plumb line, right? That's the level when you would build something without a laser level or, or the ability to find what's level, you, you started with the most square and perfect stone you can, you lay it, and then you, from that corner, begin to build the walls in each direction. Such that however square that cornerstone is, that's how square the structure is. Get this? So however perfect and square and plumb Jesus is, we believe the perfect and spotless sin of God the extent to which he is our cornerstone, he is the rock, he is the thing we depend on, so also how plumb and square and straight and righteous the church will be. But he doesn't end there. He says this isn't just for those of you who believe. And some of us would be, uh, would be prone to say, well, okay, this, this is for people that trust in Jesus, but let's not worry about them. And he drops a gauntlet. He says, in fact, this stone that others reject is now the cornerstone, and it is now a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense such that if you reject who Jesus is, you have an offense before God. They disobey the word. So beginning in verse 9, we have this recap and a summary of how you and I now, as Christians, people called to follow Jesus, start to look. Verse 9, but you, right? I was talking about those who rejected Jesus, those who who, who were basically stumbling over Jesus, and it's a rock of offense. I don't, those of you who say, I, I don't like who Jesus is, I don't trust who he says he is, I don't really believe that is who he is. That, if that's you, then you, you are currently sitting in a place of offense before God. But for those of you who have believed who Jesus is, for those of you who have received who Jesus is, did you catch that? Like Verse 7, the honor now is for you who believe. You trust, for you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in order that what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let's walk through some of these things. I want to show you how this is a picture of what the church ought to look like, and I want to show you how this orients us outwardly to the world. 
You're a chosen race. And this is interesting because now we have a new identity. Our identity in Christ now is a, as a new ethne, a new, a new ethnicity. This is particularly important for us. This has particular implications for you and for me because there is a thing in our present culture that is not easy to talk about and it's kind of a big deal and it's called race. It's called ethnicity. And those of us who are in Christ, we don't ignore ethnicity, but we do claim a new ethnicity. We have a new ethnic. We are a new people group. So all the things that sometimes they spin off in un, unhelpful, unhealthy stereotypes, but we can say that there are nations in the world, there are ethnicities that, that have subtle but, but nonetheless significant differences. God actually designed it this way. God, God actually has a plan for this. God actually is granted greater glory when, when, when the beauty of creation all unites around the throne such that Revelation 5 tells us one day every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every one of them will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God designed it this way evidently he doesn't think that he gets the glory if, he, we, if, if you and I all just like Jesus because we, we actually just look alike, think alike, talk alike, then evidently God doesn't desire that kind of glory. God desires the glory that only comes when you see it and you go, wow, they must, they must have a new loyalty because they have nothing in common otherwise. This is the new identity, this new race. It's a chosen race. But I don't want you to miss where this comes from. This is a fulfillment, and I want you to see the turn of phrase that he uses here. If you go all the way back to the place where God was setting his people free, namely the Exodus, it sets kind of a paradigm for how we understand who even Jesus is as the person who sets his people free. Beginning in verse 4 of Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. That's, that's the people that were holding God's people captive. God destroys them. That's kind of a thing. He does this, right? He sends a person to be the messenger of destruction for the people who hold God's people captive, right? First, first John tells us that the work, and we think about this in the season of Advent, the work of Jesus was that he was sent to destroy the work of the devil. So you've seen what I did to the Egyptian, the Lord says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you will speak to all the people of Israel. The main thing I want you to see here is not just that he uses the same language, but I want you to catch the verb tense. I want you to, to really hear what it is that you and I grasp and hold to be true and have as a possession of our own in Jesus Christ. He says that one day, right, you shall, you shall, one day you'll get there. One day I'm going to do something. One day I'm going to set you free and I'm going to give you a new identity. But did you catch the language of verse 9? Did you catch it? But you are a chosen race. You are. Present tense. This may be the word of encouragement that some of you need to hear. 
there's many, I know right now you're thinking all about the horizon. Yeah. Well, once I get there, once I get that job, then I'll be where God wants me to be. You know, once I stop doing that thing, once I overcome that habit or that sin or that tendency of mine, then, then I'll be where God wants me to be. Once I do this, once I accomplish that, once I get over the rainbow, then I, yeah, indeed I shall be who God wants me to be. But boy, I've got a lot to do before I get there. Friend, in Jesus Christ, we are all that God has intended for us to be. All that is perfect about us is a gift that God gives us freely in Jesus. And friend, if you think that what is lacking between you and God is something that you ought to do, then I want to warn you, you believe you are God. You believe that you are really in control. And I want to encourage you, when Jesus looked off of the cross at the people who had betrayed and killed him, he said some important words for you. It is finished. It's finished. He used the counting terms. He said that it's paid in full. It's done. Such that now we get together and we sing songs like Jesus paid, not some, Jesus paid it all. Such that now you and I can boldly approach the throne of grace. Not as slaves in the king's chamber, but as sons and daughters of the Most High God. It's happened. It's finished. He's done everything. And as we look to him, we are restored. You're a chosen race. Now this changes, I think, the way that we understand race as our culture understands it. I think what this means is that if we have a new race, if we have a new ethnicity that supersedes all others, then it changes the way we react to the way that the culture receives and responds to ethnicity. And we're in a tough spot to do this. You, you shouldn't be surprised by things like systemic racism. You shouldn't be surprised by things like systems of injustice. They're all created and run by sinful, depraved people. And you can't expect to put a bunch of criminals together and all of a sudden something glorious and righteous comes out of it. If you put a bunch of criminals in the same room, it's called organized crime, okay? And so when you put systems in place built around systems that were designed by, or designed by uh, sinful, depraved people, then you get systemic sin. So Christians above all shouldn't be surprised by things like systemic or structural racism. We shouldn't be surprised by structural injustice. We shouldn't be surprised that there are actually systems in place that are built to oppress some and exalt others. Do you know why? Because they're built by sinners. But not us. We have a new hierarchy. We have a new ethnicity. We're now in Christ. The kingdom's upside down. The greatest amongst us isn't the person who can hoard all the power and oppress others. The greatest amongst us is the one who will lay down his life to be our servant. This is a new kingdom. This is a new ethnicity. We're a new race of people. Different distinguishing marks such that now we see race differently. This sets us free, doesn't it? Doesn't, it, doesn't this set us free to treat people who look, talk, act, and think, speak differently than us in a way that exalts Christ rather than exalts our own 
favorite features. It sets us free to confess that if we were really honest, we really just like to hang out with people who look, talk, and act like us. But that doesn't exalt Christ. That exalts us. That isn't the worship of God. That's the worship of the creation of God. And I'll push back on you on this particular thing. If all the people you know look, talk, and act like you, you don't worship God. You worship you. And you're using other people to prop up how great you believe you really are. Friend, it ought not be so. We are a chosen race. And our identity has been given to us by a loving God through a perfect servant, Jesus. Second thing it says here is that we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. That's the second time that we saw this word in this text, didn't we? We're a priesthood. Important Important thing to distinguish here, it doesn't say you are royal priests. It speaks of the collective group as a priesthood. So it seems to imply that you are not a priest on your own, you are a priesthood. That is that you are together, you are a corporation of priests. And now you function in a certain way. This is important for us that we would claim what we call the priesthood of all believers. The belief that Christ has once for all been our intercessor. He has done for us that which no one else can, and now he has passed on his intercessory work to you and to me. The greatest place we go to this, right? We go, we go to the thief on the cross. Jesus hung between two thieves. One of them mocks and rebukes Jesus and says, you know, if you're so special, if you're God, then, then start fighting back and take yourself down off this cross and show everybody that you're God. And the other, the other thief also rightfully getting his punishment, looked over at the other thief and said, whoa, man, says, we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today, I tell you the truth, you are going to be with me in paradise. This is important for us. He didn't go to a priest. He went to Jesus. He wasn't baptized. He didn't take communion. He didn't join a church. He didn't, he didn't do any of these things. He didn't make it into any of these important things. His means of God's grace was not these things that he could have done. The means of God's grace to him was Jesus. It was Christ alone. And all he did was look to Christ and recognize who he was. And when he saw who he was and he asked to be mercifully included in his kingdom, Jesus, being the gracious man that he is, looked at this poor, guilty sinner just like he looks at you and, he, and me and he says, I'll take you into my kingdom. You're with me. He's our priest. He's our access. Such that now we don't need an earthly priest, but instead... We are an earthly priesthood. This is important. I, even now, some of you are looking at me and, and, and your past experience may be unbiblical, and you're looking at me and you're expecting me to be the priest. Right? That's good. That's well and good, Jonathan, but I know you, you're, you're the person. You're the person we go to. And I want to show you that will corrupt and destroy the church. And I get to look at you and go, no, 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 no. We are the priesthood. We are the intercessors. We are the ones that God has sent in order to intercede for a broken, lost, and dying world that is without hope and without peace. And we are the ones who come with this good news. 
And we declare a mystery that God has done everything necessary. The language we also see elsewhere is this kind of royal priesthood, a holy nation. You'll see this elsewhere is like we, we represent a kingdom. Because we're not just priests, but we're a royal priesthood. We, we're like the king's priest. We're like a king priest. Remember here, here in the back of your head, Melchizedek, right? The king priest that Jesus ultimately stepped into. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then he or she is a, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given us now the ministry of reconciliation. So stop right there. That's a word we don't usually use often, that ministry of reconciliation. Um, so that, that's, that's a simple word of service. Uh, the best way to see this, though, is like we would use the word secretary in our own culture, like a secretary of state, a secretary of treasury, but ultimately a servant of a particular thing, put in, put in charge of and entrusted with care over a particular thing in our own government. But, but the better way to see this in a... In a because we don't have kings and queens. If you look at a monarchy, for example, like the, the British Parliament, which is really, I guess, a constitutional mar monarchy, they still have some remnants of this. Have you noticed this? They don't have secretary of state. They have a ministry. So you're not the secretary of defense. You're the minister of defense. I want you to get that. I want you to get the language and the implications here. Not just that you're a servant, but you are entrusted with care over something that has great value in this kingdom. You have a, a royal consignment. You have been commissioned with something that the king has given to you. And you are now the minister. You're not the minister of defense. You are the minister of what? Reconciliation. Now that we've been restored to God, God has entrusted that restorative work to us. Now that he has redeemed us and called us to himself, he has passed on that work to you and to me. And now we have that ministry. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, now you get this royal language, this governmental language, therefore now we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we who are unrighteous might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus has accomplished, he has passed on to us to deliver as a message of good news to the world. So this is what this means for the church. We exist as an embassy to a greater kingdom. We exist as an embassy for a greater kingdom. Our citizenship is not here. We're, we're on a visa. We have a, a temporary kind of dual citizenship. But our, our first citizenship is not in this earthly kingdom. It's in an eternal one. And we are now a royal priesthood. He speaks to the Corinthians here to say that they are ambassadors that is, emissaries, representatives. Now, I had to look up that word because I often don't necessarily get this one right. I don't use the word ambassador a lot, but it's an official envoy, especially like a diplomatic agent of the highest rank that's accredited to a foreign government as a resident representative 
of his or own own home government. They're appointed for a special but often temporary diplomatic assignment. You hear it? That's the language of the church. Because Christ has now drawn us to Himself, our citizenship is not here. Thank God. This is not a great place to be. You put your hopes in this place and you will be sorely, sorely hurt and disappointed. There are some people in our own city just, just this week carrying out their own job downtown and a building cost one of them their lives. That's this world. That's what it's like in this world. Where on an idle weekday, what you usually hold to be true and valuable and dependable at any given moment can be a life-altering experience to the point where now you and I, at any given moment, we can be that person who gets that call. Some of you have gotten that phone call. You know what it is. The phone call that Everything's been turned upside down. That's what this world has to offer. But, I declare to you good news. Your citizenship, your hope, your fate is not in this world and its brokenness. Your citizenship is eternal. Your hope is in a king that is merciful. You are united now in Christ to a kingdom that has no end and now we exist because our citizenship is in christ in a heaven we exist now bringing that heaven to earth like an embassy i learned a lot about this that doesn't mean that this is necessarily going to be perfect we still live in a broken and sinful world but we as we saw the last two weeks have been endowed by jesus we've been endorsed by jesus with the king with the keys of the kingdom Twice he mentioned it, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, that the church now has the keys. We have the right, we have the ability to let people in and out. I saw this, I saw this in a, in a powerful way. Um, several years ago, I got to do something that, that we as missionaries, as a church, I hope will begin to do. It's my goal, hopefully, and your goal as well in the next year, two or three. We become a missionary church. I want you to be praying about mission trips that we can be a part of locally, globally, you name it, right? Um, so I was on a, a global mission trip. I went to Nepal and got a chance to go to the swamp and uh, not the cool part where they climb mountains and ski on the, the, down the snowy the hills. I, I went to like, it was like 100 degrees and 100% humidity, okay? And, and so as I went there, they were like, whatever you do, don't lose your, your documents. Do not lose your passport. Now, that's a big deal for me because I can remember like the score from a seventh grade football game. Um, I can remember probably word for word everything that I say in this sermon. I can kind of like rehash it, but I don't know where my keys or my wallet are. Okay, I, I, where's my cell phone? I don't know, okay? So th- that's, that's me, all right? I'm a big picture guy. You'll see this as we, as we get to know one another. I'm a big picture guy. I'm a visionary. Let's go. Let's go to the kingdom. But what do we need to do today? I don't know, okay? You're gonna have to help me on this. So, so I just asked. I asked one of, the, one of the officials, what if, like what would happen if I were to lose my passport? Like what, 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 I mean, what would happen if I lost my passport? Because I just wanted to know. I, kinda, I thought maybe it would help motivate me. And, uh, and, and the first thing is he just got stern, and he was like, you're not going to lose it. I'm like, yes, sir. I, you're right. Uh, but what if I were? And he was like, well, 
it would be rough, and you probably, I can almost guarantee you would miss your flight home, and you would probably miss the next 10 flights home, and I immediately was like, and I'm, I can imagine that, you know, tell, calling my wife, hey, um, I'm actually going to be in a foreign country, and at this time, we had just had another baby, uh, don't leave your wife to do that, that's a bad idea, but I could just imagine at that moment calling like, hey, baby, I, I'm actually going to be, next, I'm going to be out another, another two months here, and she's going to be like, what, you know, has Jesus called you to do that, you know, and tell people about Jesus, and I'm going to be like, no, I'm an idiot, and I've lost my passport and my wallet, right, and I was just dreading this, and the, the official told me, he said, here's what you would have to do, you would have to go to Kathmandu, the capital city of Nepal, and you would have to go to the U.S. Embassy. And you would have to, as best you can, present documents or evidence that you are a U.S. citizen. That you really are a citizen of the country you want to get to. Now notice here, the embassy couldn't make me an American citizen. Didn't have that power. Only, only... Only the sovereign nation of the U.S. could make me a citizen of that, right? Either by birth or, or by naturalization, right? The embassy couldn't do that. But the embassy had the power to endorse my citizenship. Or to deny it. They couldn't make me citizens. But they in this foreign, com- this foreign country existed as a, like a miniature United States where they could endorse or deny my credentials. They could say whether or not I really was a citizen of another country. You get it? So also, as ambassadors, as a royal priesthood charged with this great commission to make disciples, has the church been granted the authority, the keys, Jesus says, to the kingdom of heaven? Not to save people, certainly not. We don't have that ability. But to declare an authoritative word about the one who does save. And to endorse citizenship or deny citizenship in a greater kingdom. So when we want to know, this is beautiful, when we want to know what like heaven looks like, this will blow your mind. People are called to look at the body of Christ, the local church. When they want to know what's heaven like, what's God like, The Bible tells us, watch my people. Watch their priesthood. Watch the way they intercede. Watch that nation within a nation. Watch these people that exist as an embassy. An embassy in Sioux Falls. We we love our city, but we don't belong here. Our citizenship, our ethnicity, our race is an eternal race bought for us in Jesus Christ. We're now ambassadors that plead. We plead with our people, the city in which we live, that they would embrace a kingdom that's foreign and eternal. Elsewhere, we see this in the Bible. Paul tells the Ephesians, Now pray for me also that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. Catch that language again? In chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. As a local church, we are not only rightly oriented before God by the gospel, we are not only rightly oriented to one another as the church, but we are then rightly oriented to the world. We are not the world. Instead, we are the church. This is amazing for us. We exist as an embassy from the kingdom of heaven, ambassadors from the kingdom of heaven 
to this world. Paul tells the Galatians this way, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Philippians 3 says it this way, our citizenship now is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity is in Him. Our citizenship is His. And He gives it out freely. So here we are. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has transformed us, transferred us from that kingdom, the book of Colossians says, to a new kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of His beloved Son. Friend, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. When's the last time when someone called you holy? You are a holy nation because of Christ. You are a people that is God's own possession. I don't know how protective you are of your possessions, but if you sent your one and only son to purchase something, I think you would hold that thing that you purchased fairly tightly. So also, tightly, Jesus has purchased God's ability to hold on to us. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. At one point, you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But if you might ask, why? What's the purpose? We find the answer at the end of verse 9. We're a people for his own possessions. Why? Why are we God's own possessions? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's it. That's who we are. By the gospel, we are now disciples. And now in the gospel as the church, we are a community of believers that are family. But also because of what Christ has done for you, we overflow with this good news and we are now missionaries. This is beautiful. This starts to undermine our culture and I want to land there. This starts to undermine what we typically believe. Like what if, what if this is true? And the words spoken in the life of our church that are the most important aren't necessarily the words that I speak on a weekly basis here with you. What if the most important words that are spoken are the words that I equip you to speak to all the people you come in contact with out there? What if you exist as an embassy What if people are looking to see what God's kingdom is like and they're watching you closely? What if this is true and God has really entrusted you with the message of reconciliation? Think about the people you know right now. Think about the people you know who you could guarantee are are not Christian, right? And then ask yourself this question. Who has God sent to that person with this good news of Jesus? What minister of reconciliation has God appointed to that task? What ambassador of an eternal kingdom has God put into their life so that they would know about the excellencies of God that call us out of darkness and into light? Who is it? Because I would argue, until they have take a pastor to the work day, which maybe they'll have one day, until that happens... It's not me, it's you. And the work of intercession, the ministry of reconciliation, isn't left for the pros. It's actually something that Jesus has purchased for all of us to have access to. Friend, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought that God 
in His infinite wisdom, look down at the people who are without hope in your life and mine and is appointed before time that you would be the one who bears this good news. That you would be the one that wins them over. Demonstrates like an ambassador the truth of a great and sovereign king that loves and cares for his people. Have you ever thought that highly of yourself? Because I want to tell you, Jesus does. And he died on a cross for your sake and mine so that this would overflow to the nations. It's a fulfillment of the beginning. Fulfillment of the the garden that in Revelation turns into a city. Where once everything was perfect and broken by sin, Jesus has now restored and sent you and I as ambassadors that one day we would gather again in this new priest or in this new garden, this new new city. And the very first priest gardener, Adam, who failed, has been picked up by the perfect priest gardener, Jesus. I love it. My one of my favorite stories, right, in, in, the, in the New Testament, we celebrate this at Easter, uh, when, when the women came to the tomb, and, and, and we hear in one of the Gospels that they saw Jesus. And I love it. Remember, who, who did they think he was? Remember this? The gardener. And that's like, it's like, they should at that point in the Greek say like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, right? It should be this like, I wonder, is that the gardener, right? It's supposed to be this revelatory moment where you go, oh my goodness, the one who once failed what God had entrusted to him and started a, a generation of failure and sin in you and me has been restored by the one who did not. And he has redeemed us as a new priesthood, a royal nation, a holy nation, people set apart as his own possession so that we would proclaim the excellencies of his grace. We are now his people. So here's what I think. If you're going to be a biblical Christian, You won't find the ability to do so outside of the local church. And here's what I want to compel you. If you're going to follow what the Bible teaches about what a disciple is, then by the gospel you're united with Christ. Through the gospel now you're united with others. And in the power of the gospel we are missionaries to our world. And I want to tell you, come join this great mission. We are priests whose only job is to expand the temple such that the original tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, that was divided by a great veil between God's special presence and the presence of fallen, broken humanity, that veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom so that you know who did it first. It was torn from the top to the bottom so that now we would look and realize that the holy presence of God is no longer locked up in a building. It's on display for the world to see in you and in me. Let's join that together. Let's be this. By God's grace, let's be what he has called us to be. Is it possible that God's put people in your life and you're the priest that he means to send? Is it possible that it's not an accident? Is it possible that you're even in this place right here, right now, this moment, to hear me declare the good news of how excellent God's grace is for you? What's holding you back? What's keeping you from belonging to Christ and to the church? I'll end on this thought. 
the gospel is at the top, the church, the community, the gospel-centered community is like a triangle in which we see the gospel at the top, the church at one corner, and the, the mission of the church at the other. Think of it as like upward, inward, and outward. Think of it, this is stolen from a missionary to India by the name of, India by the name of Leslie Newbegin. And he began to explain First Peter in this way, that we are now oriented through Christ in a certain way toward one another and to the world. And we exalt the gospel even more than we exalt the community and the way that we exalt the culture. Now think if you will, in your own mind, what if that, what if that triangle was tilted to the point where the community, the church was at the top, such that the gospel was subjugated and then our mission was subjugated, our, our culture was subjugated. Have you seen this? Because here's what happens. When you aim for community, you'll sacrifice the gospel. But when you aim for the gospel, like a royal priesthood, you'll create and expand the tabernacle and build community. This is amazing for us. Because if you put community at the top, if all you want is community, then you'll use the church to get it. And you'll turn it into a country club. And what you really love is that people look, talk, and act like you. Not being redeemed into a new ethnicity because of Jesus, but you'll just like that they talk and think and act like you and make you feel good. If you aim for community, you'll sacrifice the good news and you'll start cutting people out. You'll shrink the tabernacle, you'll shrink the temple of God. Also, though, if you tilted the triangle in the other way, maybe if, you, if we exalt the culture, if we exalt a, a sense of just drawing people in and, and belonging to our culture above the gospel, then the same thing will happen. When you aim for when you aim for the culture, then you'll sacrifice the gospel. But if you aim for the gospel, you'll engage the culture. So we would say it this way. I don't care how, like, I don't care how like Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian you think you are. Our identity isn't in the community. The community gets its identity from Christ. I also don't care if you could get a million people together in the same room. So what? The culture loves you. If you sacrifice the gospel, then you're not pointing people to a greater kingdom. May we be a group of people who, because of the good news of Jesus, the cornerstone that has been laid out, saved all of us and put us rightly in place in God's people, declare His excellencies because He's called us out of darkness into marvelous light. May that change the way we re react to one another and may we change the way we react to our culture. And may we, in glad submission, jump into this thing that God has called as the missionary embassy to the world, the church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we deserve neither. You are faithful to us in spite of our faithlessness. And so, if there are some in this room that all of this talk about family and church, if it, if it, just, if it seems like, like extra jump, uh, hoops to jump through, if it just seems like a cult or something crazy, would you, would you begin to soften our heart to the possibility that you uh, have actually not abandoned the world to its hopelessness, but you have sent us to be salt and light, to be missionaries, to be priests, to be an embassy for your glory and your kingdom here in this world? Would we first and foremost be united with you in Christ? Would we first and foremost see that you have paid in full all that was required of us? May we grant assurance of pardon to all those who are in Christ. And we can say with a great deal of confidence, if you will trust in Christ, if you will lean on his finished work, 
if you will turn away from what you are able to do, if you will turn away from your own sin and sinfulness and to the finished work of God's mercy displayed for us in Jesus, then there is pardon, there is mercy, there is a citizenship in a kingdom that will never end. But maybe for some of us, maybe the, the hindrance is just the belief that this is something we're called to do in our culture. Uh, would you begin to stir in us a desire to be a church that exists as an embassy not that we can save, but we have the power to endorse citizenship by the power of Jesus Christ. May we wield that humbly and boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.